0: So, if you're a leader, you want to encourage micro leadership among your team because you will never go too far seizing those one or two leadership moments. When we think about small little actions you can take, you'll never go too far with that. No one will ever be upset at you for bringing a reticent teammate into a conversation or staying late to help clean up.
1: Thrive friends. This is your host, Dr. Solomon. How can we make a change at any level? My guest today, Alex Budak, will help us answer this question. Alex is a social entrepreneur, is a faculty at the University of California, Berkeley, High School of Business, where he teach a course about change making. He is the author of a new book, Becoming a Change Maker, which is targeting mostly millennial and Gen Z but it is more inclusive than just these two generations. Alex, welcome on Thrive.
0: Dr. Solomon, thanks so much for having me. I love the message you put out into the world. So honored to be with you today.
1: Alex, let's start with your book. What made you think about writing a book about change making? Uh, It's such a joy to be working
0: on and now putting this book out into the world. Uh, So As you mentioned, I developed and teach a class at the high school business at UC Berkeley called Becoming a Changemaker. And so this class is really the course I wish I had when I was 20, 21, 22 years old. And it's been just the greatest joy teaching it at Berkeley. As my students will know, I get so excited teaching them that sometimes I can't even sleep the night after I've talked. I'm just so energized from the passion in the classroom. And so I love teaching. I love this idea of supporting people from all walks of life and becoming change makers. But the lessons to this point have all been stuck with inside the classroom at UC Berkeley. And Berkeley is an amazing place to be. I have incredible students, but I firmly believe that anyone and everyone can be a change maker. And so it's a real joy and a privilege to get to share some of the lessons, the stories, the insights and even some of the exercises from my class uh, and to do so with a much wider audience now.
1: Alex, you are aware that we all have a bias against change. We love status quo. Everyone preach change. But when it comes to actual change, people get hesitant, let's say it in a nice way. And this is where the employee and the employer will not be on the same page. The employee wants to make a change. The employer, deep down, wants to make a change. But they kind of said, you know what? I have been in this organization long enough to think, oh, things are not going to change. What's your take on that?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And and the social science bears out what you're saying. So Samuelson and Zach Hauser in the late 80s did classic research on the status quo bias, behavioral economists, and they showed that we tend to prefer the status quo even when the alternative is better. So that means that all of us, no matter where we are in the organization, we're going to need to confront status quo bias head on. And I think if we first start with the big picture view, it's nice to think that we could just remain the way that things are. But if you look around at the world today, from all the disruption caused by COVID to global warming, the long overdue reckoning of racial injustice in the United States and around the world, among so many other changes, digital disruption, uh, the status quo just isn't tenable anymore. So as much as we would like to think, well, hey, we'll just kind of keep things the way that they are. I think the world around us, society around us, politics, economics around us tells us, well, there's an imperative to change. Now, you framed the question a bit around sort of employees versus leadership, and I think there can often be a tension there. Patty Sanchez did amazing work that showed that 50% of senior executives don't actually think about how others in the organization will appreciate a change that they're trying to make. So 50% may come up with the right answer, but they're not bringing other people along in the change. Now, I hope that you'll believe that all of us do want change, that employees and leadership alike want to drive change forward. So the question is, how do we get all of us on the same board, uh, same page? And I think there's a lot that we can, can do there. So I mean, part of it is listening to those on the front lines. Oftentimes, they will have perspectives that others might not be aware of. In working with executives, one of the things I often encourage them to do is to create a board of advisors, not a board of advisors of super famous people. Rather, a board of advisors of people working in the organization, reflective of the diversity and demographics of the entire company. So you can talk about change with them. So rather than thinking that you know the best answer in a conference room by yourself, that you're taking into account how all of us will be affected by change. Now, at the same time, there's another concept I love, which is called norm entrepreneurship. So we often think about entrepreneurship as launching or scaling a business. A norm entrepreneurship is that same idea, but it's around scaling and launching new cultures. What I love about norm entrepreneurship is that it's inherently democrat- democratic, it's egalitarian. Any of us can lead culture from where we are, whether we're an intern, an entry-level employee, or in the C-suite. What does it look like? It's starting and scaling culture, whether that's informal or formal. On the formal side, you know, we might be pushing for things like equal pay throughout the organization, but can also take much more informal means. It might be saying, hey, we're doing a lot of meetings on Zoom these days. Before we just jump into the agenda, why don't we take five minutes and just check in see how people are doing, ask about weekends. And what I love about that is that you could be entry level and suggest that as a change you started. Now, just like a business enterprise, there's no guarantee that it will succeed. It may not work, it may not catch on, but when we start seeing ourselves as norm entrepreneurs, irrespective of title or place in the organization, we can all start scaling and launching new culture initiatives. And culture, as we've seen, can often be a great catalyst for change.
1: Thank you for sharing this. People watching us, here is the title and the cover of the book. I had the privilege of receiving a copy. Thank you, Alex. And going through the content before it gets released formally, or I would say tentatively, around mid-September 2022. And I learned my lesson from COVID time not to make any firm plans when things will happen. So just Keep an eye for the book in September 13 for now. Hopefully nothing will change, but stay tuned. Alex, in your course, you focus on seven main concepts of change, and one of them is micro leadership. Could you help me understand micro leadership and explain it to the audience? Yeah, thanks for picking up on that. It's something that I'm really passionate about, and it's one of the lessons
0: that really seems to resonate with a number of my students. So when we think about leadership, we often think about leadership as the one singular grandiose act. Think of it as, like, well, as a scale in the wall, or we think of Steve Jobs pulling the iPhone out of his pocket, these one singular leadership moments. And to be clear, that is leadership. That's important. But oftentimes, when we put leadership up on that pedestal, it can feel a little bit exclusive, I Feel like it's not for us. If I'm not that super outgoing, super charismatic, super extroverted leader, or I don't have the traditional status of privilege and power, that I couldn't actually be a leader. And so instead, I like to think of things in terms of micro leadership. So rather than thinking about leadership as titles, I think of it as actions. And micro-leadership breaks it down into the smallest possible atom of leadership, which is a leadership moment. So micro-leadership invites us to seize the leadership moments that are around us every day, continuously. It's not being on the stage and pulling an iPhone out of our pocket, but maybe it's being in a meeting and noticing that one of your colleagues has been quiet the whole meeting and saying, hey, you know, what do you think about this? Or maybe it's being the one that stays late to help clean up after an event maybe it's having the courage to say no when everyone else is saying yes there are all these leadership moments that appear around us all the time every day and so my challenge for you as change makers is to seize those leadership moments to practice micro leadership leadership itself might feel scary but we break it down into small acts micro leadership is accessible to all of us and the great part is that if you're waiting for someone to tell you okay you can be a leader Here's your permission. You don't need a title. You don't need authority. You can start seizing those leadership moments no matter where you are. And that's my challenge for you as you finish this podcast today is pay attention to those leadership moments. And the next time you notice
1: one, see if you can take advantage of it and and step up. Love it, Alex. How can people implement micro-leadership without coming across as bossy or as troublemakers?
0: Yeah, it's a wonderful a uh, complement to uh, micromanaging. So no one likes to be micromanaged. No one likes to be told what to do. And so if you're a leader, you wanna encourage micro leadership among your team because you will never go too far seizing those one or two leadership moments. When you think about small little acts that you can take, you'll never go too far with that. No one will ever be upset at you for bringing a reticent teammate into a conversation or staying late to help clean up. And the more that you do those things, the more that it adds up, and then you start building some of your leadership confidence and you're seen as someone who takes action on the regular. So it's a safe way to get started with leadership without feeling like you're gonna step on any toes.
1: Before we move on to the next part of this great conversation, Alex, how can people reach out to you?
0: Oh, thanks. Yeah. I'm always happy to hear from people. I love talking with change makers, supporting them, wherever they are in in their journey. So Mm -hmm. my top social media platform is LinkedIn. So I encourage you to please reach out there, post pretty regularly there. Um, Check my website, which is alexbudak.com. And then also would love for you to take a look at the book, uh, the book's website, which is changemakerbook.com. So lots of ways to find me. Uh, I would love to hear from, from fellow change makers.
1: Thank you for sharing this. Alex, I know you love your course and your students love your course as well. What is your favorite part of your course? And I would like to assume it's also favorite part that will be in your book. Mm, Such a good question. Um, There's
0: so much that I love about teaching the class. I think if I had to choose one thing, it's probably the lesson we do on failure. So you can imagine students that are in my class at UC Berkeley, they're very high achievers. They've done everything right throughout their academic life, from thriving in high school to coming into college, um, excelling on tests. But one of the things that many of them are not comfortable with is smart risk-taking and failure. I find that so many of them, when I ask them, what holds you back from leading change? It's fear of failure because people aren't taught in school how to fail and how to learn from failure. So we have a whole lecture, which is all based on resilience, risk-taking, questioning the status quo, and failure. And so I give some research studies, some frameworks, and then near the end of the lecture, I flash up two words on the screen, go, fail. And students sort of laugh nervously, thinking, well, is he serious about this? And I go, yeah, I'm I'm serious. Then the next slide comes on, and I tell students they have 15 minutes, they have to go leave the classroom, and they have to go get rejected. They have to ask for something and get someone to say no. No. If they ask for something and someone says, yes, that doesn't count. They have to keep going and keep going until someone rejects them, until they get a failure. So students look at me and they think I'm kidding. They start reacting somatically. You can see them turning red. You can see them sweating. Their hearts are beating. They're laughing nervously. And they go, okay, you got 15 minutes. Go fail. So they go out of the classroom, sort of nervously shuffling their feet. But then when they come back 15 minutes later... Transformed. It's incredible the energy that's in the classroom. They're buoyant when they see that they went out there, they failed, and they came back alive. They came back with stories to tell. And we find a couple of things. One is that about one third of the time, students ask for something crazy and they get yes. They're sure that they'll get rejected, but they actually get what they've asked for. Whether that was a student who, on a rainy day, asked a fellow student, Hey, my next class is 15 minutes across campus. I don't have an umbrella. Will you walk me across campus? And the guy said yes to the woman who walked into the school gym and said, Hey, uh, it's not my birthday, but will you all sing happy birthday to me? And to her surprise, they did. So sometimes we get a yes, even when we expect a no. But then for the other two thirds, they realize that failure isn't fatal, that we have to fail in order to do anything meaningful. And whereas we often think that everyone will be laughing at us if we fail and that it's the biggest thing we'll ever do. It's really not that big of a deal. And in order to lead any change you have to get, you have to get past failure. And this lesson often changes uh, perspectives. The energy in the classroom after this is so exciting that I once had a professor next door come and ask us to to keep the noise down because students were just so excited from the feeling that they've been sort of lifted out of these, uh, this restriction that could never fail and realize not only can they fail, they need to fail in order to lead change.
1: Uh, It reminds me of a philosopher, Hegel. One of his concepts is the fruitful failure, and his take is that it's not only an option to fail. It is a prerequisite, a failure, in order for it to be fruitful. And if you think about someone saying this in the 1800s, you know, this guy must be crazy. People can succeed without failure. Maybe he has a point, and it's, it's very much in line with what you say. Well, I think this stood out to me from what you said is the risk averse mentality in high achievers, especially in academic environments. Um, medical school, I can tell you the students are selected mostly for being risk averse because you want people to stick to the guidelines and not innovate much. Uh, better not to be change makers. They better be we get them quiet and love the exercise you did with your students because it will take them outside of the shell that they have been in throughout high school, college, and whatever graduate school they have been in before joining the MBA. Did you ever come across students who are so paralyzed that they don't want to do it and you had to talk to them?
0: Oh yeah, I'm always the sort of person in the room and so say, hey, you know, if you're scared about this, come talk with me, I'll help you, help set you up. Uh, and so I'll usually have maybe 5% of the class that sticks around before they leave the classroom and says, hey, no, I'm so scared. What, what should I do? And so I'll help them brainstorm and always help them just take like one step beyond what you're comfortable for. You don't have to go for a big, crazy failure, but just try to get rejected in a, in a small way. And so I think of one student who came to me and she was so petrified of failure that she almost couldn't leave the classroom. So we talked about what could she ask for. And we said, okay, let's ask for something that, you know, someone will say no to, but isn't that big of a deal. And so I convinced her that she should go ask a random woman to try on her shoes because there's no way that she would say yes to that. So she finally agreed that she would walk out. So again, they had 15 minutes. They spent probably five minutes talking with me. Then she recounts it to me. She spent the next nine minutes and 30 seconds just pacing the hallways, just nervously saying, will I actually ask this person? Then finally, like 30 seconds left, she decides to ask them. They of course say no, but they say no in a very kind way. She comes back to the classroom. And of course this isn't the only thing that led to it, uh, but I followed her journey. And one year later she ran for student body uh, government leadership at UC Berkeley and she won. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard for me to imagine her ever having done that if she didn't get comfortable with that one being willing to uh, ask for a woman's shoes and get rejected in the first place.
1: This is amazing. Like this, fifteen minute could be transformative for someone's life.
0: Yeah, and I hope that students will continue to repeat this as well. So it's a one time exercise, but of course, there's nothing stopping you from failing every single day when you ever need a little jolt. Um, And for sure, when you start your change efforts, I hope that students reflect back on that. And when they get their first no, whether that's a funding request or a volunteer request or a partnership request, that they'll remember that exercise and go, okay, no, failure is not fatal. It's just all part of the process. On to the next one.
1: Alex, something you alluded to in the talk, and also I'm impressed by in your lovely book is the science that is backing up the work. Could you highlight some of the science behind change making and something that is supported by research?
0: Yeah, so change making can of course feel some a bit squishy or soft or fuzzy to some folks. And so uh, along with the incredible folks at Eden Strategy, based in Singapore, uh, we've undertaken the first ever longitudinal study of changemakers. So all the students that take my class, we do a before and after survey. We look at attitudinal, behavioral, and situational aspects of being a changemaker. We study before they take the class, as well as after, and then do annual one-year follow-ups to see how they're developing on the traits of changemaker mindsets, changemaker leadership, change maker effectiveness. And I do so as a scientist, right, I don't go out to prove anything, but rather with some sense of curiosity to say, I wonder what would happen if, can we prove that making can actually be a sustainable change in people's lives. And we find that unequivocally the data say yes, absolutely, students are transformed in taking the class. Um, but what's also powerful about it is we're starting to be able to pull out some, do some regressions and actually figure out what are the correlations, like what leads to someone being an effective changemaker. And so, for instance, we see that one of the most valuable things a changemaker can do is be able to influence without authority. So whether you're a CEO or you're entry level, more and more in today's world, it's no longer about just being able to get things done by virtue of telling them what to do. Influence is such an important skill. And so, by running all the analysis and seeing what makes change makers succeed, we're able to actually isolate some of those variables and find that, um, irrespective of age or title, that something like being able to influence is a really important change maker trait. That then, of course, influences the way that I teach to make sure that I focus on that and also reinforces to the folks taking my class and the people uh, who I hope will read the book. Uh, showing that yes, it's actually something that can be developed. You can become a change maker, and that you're following a path which has been scientifically proven to say, "Yeah, the data is there. You really can become a change maker."
1: Thank you for sharing this, uh, Alex. Again, people watching us or hearing us on the podcast, the book title is "Becoming a Change Maker." It is available on Amazon, available also in all bookstores. I can recognize will be released September 13, uh, 2022. Stay tuned. Alex, you mentioned something about the change in the leadership to match what people are looking for. In your book, Target, mostly Millennial and Gen Z. From working with them as a professor and also reading the literature about their social characteristics, what stood out to you about from the concept of change making? Well, I think
0: it sounds such a natural home with them because there is such a desire to affect positive change. But one very specific aspect that I think will come more naturally to Gen Z, but is also reflective of the world we're inhabiting, is this natural bias towards collaboration. So if you look at the traditional business world right now, you might think that it's an every person for themselves type of world, uh, a bit competitive, a bit zero sum. Uh, But I think that from talking with my students and from studying Gen Z, millennials, that collaboration is something that is much more highly valued. And it makes sense when you think about what actually, what it actually takes to get work done today. So if we think about the world we're coming into now, which tends to be flatter, more global, and much more distributed, it's a lot harder to be a solo, lone, individual contributor, that so much of the work we do will be through collaboration. As I say in my class often, change making is a team sport. And so in my class this book, I think Gen Z, all have a bias towards effective collaboration. It's not to say that we can't do meaningful work by ourselves, but I think so many of them recognize the collective power we have together. I firmly believe that none of the huge systemic challenges that we're facing, whether that's water access, global warming, inequality, will be solved by any single person, by any single discipline. It's going to take collaboration, being a network-based leader. And I think that's something that's part of the class and book, and also that it feels very natural
1: to a lot of Gen Zs. Gen Z have seen things that were not there for prior generations, like the economic crisis in 2008, which is the worst since the Second World War. They also saw the impact of COVID-19 on their employment when they were just graduating, either from high school or college. So I'm sure they will benefit from your great book. Let's shift gears now to challenges. Something caught my eyes in your book is you were rejected twice by Berkeley. Is that correct? And now you are at Berkeley. And that leads me to ask you the question that I ask every guest on Thrive. We all have moments where we manage to go from striving to thriving. Could you share one of these with the audience for inspiration? Oh, of course.
0: I mean, where, where to start with And I've got so many. And I've learned that my nickname, uh, the school, is often the failure professor, which I hope is because of the failure exercise I do, not because of my many failures, but I've had many failures, and so I'm happy to talk about them. But uh, as I think about one, kind of stepping into my own uh, leadership approach, I think back to the earlier days of Start Some Good. So I co-founded Start Some Good, which is a social innovation crowdfunding platform. And so the early days of running it, I was completely overworked. I was working 80, 90, sometimes 100 hour weeks. I was exhausted. I was not an effective leader, uh, but I had so much passion for it and just kept going and kept going and kept going. At the same time, I also realized I was judging myself based off of how often a teammate would come to me to ask for my advice, for my input. Hey Alex, what do you think about this marketing strategy? Hey Alex, what do you think about this copy? Hey Alex, what do you think about the spreadsheet that I built? And at the time I was going, wow, Look what an amazing leader I am. Look how important I am to my team. But as I zoomed out, I saw a couple of things. One, I was just exhausted. And secondly, I realized that our company was like a merry-go-round. I had placed myself as the pole in the middle of the merry-go-round. And there was all this activity swirling around, all these people that, quote, needed me, uh, but we weren't going anywhere. It was at that moment, I realized that's not sustainable. I realized that I had to find ways to step back. And that's the moment where I learned to step back and trust my team. At that moment, I started making the transition that I no longer judged myself by how many decisions I made for them, but rather how many decisions could they make without me? How could I support them with vision and values and let them make the important decisions to trust them? Uh, and once I did that, then I was able to work less, but also the organization started taking off because we fully trusted this talented team around us, let them make the decisions, and I no longer held back the team.
1: This is amazing. How did your team react to you changing your personality from? someone who would like to know everything about everything to someone who is saying oh you can go ahead and try were they shocked were they mistrusting they thought you were playing tricks on them i don't think they thought i
0: was playing tricks but it's important to not just do it completely overnight but also this is a lesson for all leaders is that it's one thing to say something another thing to make sure your actions actually back it up and so i think there may be a little bit like shock to say okay well so i could really just post this, and you won't need to look over it and say, yeah, that's right. But then if I'd come in at the last moment and go, oh, well, let me just take a look, um, then they wouldn't have trusted what I said. Uh, or if I felt like um, I sort of felt like I didn't trust, but then was still hovering, that wouldn't have worked either. So it took a lot of um, self-control, self-consciousness to sort of really back off. But then once the actions back up the rhetoric, then I think they realized that it was for real and that they were much happier with the result
1: as well. This is a terrific example of uh, change making. And I'm sure they did some micro leadership in this process where they took one or two small leadership decisions that gave them confidence. And from that, they kept going.
0: Great connection. Absolutely.
1: What a pleasure to have you on Thrive, Alex.
0: Dr. Solomon, thanks so much. Such a fun conversation. Really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you so much for your time on Thrive. People watching us and listening to us on podcasts, please do not forget to check Alex Hodak on LinkedIn, it's his major social platform. Till we meet next time, keep safe, keep motivated, keep resilient, and see you in the next episode of DRIVE. Thank you.